Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. This podcast exists because of the paid members at decodingtv.com. Become a paid member and get ad-free episodes as well as early access to episodes. Thanks to everyone at decodingtv.com who makes this podcast possible. There's a reason I'm telling you this. My mother, my children, New Year's Eve, you'll be reluctant to accept it or believe it, but I promise you, every single piece is important. We buried my boy today. Now almost nobody came this time. Sixth coffin I've put in the dirt. In less than two weeks. Hello, everyone, and welcome to This Week in Streaming, a Decoding TV podcast. I'm David Chen, and I'm going to be replaced by Bruce Greenwood halfway through this podcast episode. Joining me today is Sarah Morris. I'm Sarah Mars, and I would love to be haunted by Carla Gugino. <laughs> Each week, This Week in Streaming, we'll cover a show that's new and interesting in the world of streaming. We'll tell you if it's worth watching, and if it is, we'll review and spoil and discuss the entire season of the show. Today, we are discussing Mike Flanagan's The Fall of the House of Usher new eight-part miniseries available right now on Netflix. All episodes are available. We have watched all episodes. We're going to start today by talking about our overall thoughts on the show. Uh, and we'll do that in a non-spoilery fashion. And then we are going to spoil the entire season and kind of go through episode by episode and share our thoughts on each episode of the show. You can find more episodes of this podcast at podcast.decodingtv.com. Email us at decodingtv at gmail.com and find us across all platforms uh, at Decoding TV. We're on YouTube, Instagram, threads, and so forth. So I do want to address the fact that typically on This Week in Streaming, we cover like the first episode or the first few episodes of the show. And then later on, we cover the, the whole show. I did consider doing that. But as I started watching The Fall of the House of Usher, it just became clear that it would just make more sense to do it this way. Just watch the whole thing, talk about overall thoughts, and then talk about, you know, spoil everything. Because it really does feel like a whole unit, right? Sarah Mars, don't you think this is like a an eight-hour movie, as they might yeah, say? Yeah, it, it's so interesting to me. I think Mike Flanagan is really good at this. I think this is one of his talents as a writer, particularly when he writes for episodic television, um, is... People will talk about prestige drama series like it's an eight hour movie and it never is. Um, it's eight hours of television. But Mike Flanagan does have a way of making his stories like these are definitely episodes. There are yes. arcs contained within each of the eight episodes. It is episodic, and yet it, the way it's paced, the way it's edited with there's flashbacks, there's kind of cross-cutting stories of the different siblings, the way it's edited, the way it's paced, the the story elements that are parceled out in each episode, it really moves like an eight-hour movie. Yeah, it, it, It's a cognitive dissonance to me because it is an episodic show, and yeah. yet it feels like a very cohesive, like I plowed through all eight episodes. 
Yeah. And didn't feel it. Didn't feel like I had just sat there and watched seven and what hour, seven hours and whatever minutes of TV. Like it felt like it moved really fast. I got through all eight hours in like three to four days. So uh, yeah, I, I, I would agree. And by the way, the notion of a TV show as an eight hour movie or a 10 hour movie um, has often been used in a pejorative fashion these days, right? Like it's people say it because uh, essentially using it in a negative way is saying, Hey, you don't know how to structure an episode of TV. You're just basically, you have no, there's no discipline. We're just making an eight hour long film and we're just arbitrarily chopping it up into like eight distinct units. Uh, but I agree with you that what Flanagan is great at doing is he's able to achieve both. I think it, it is episodic television. Each episode is a self-contained thing. And yet they all go towards telling this broader story. That is one area where I think the fall of the house of Usher really succeeds. I, I think the like it's an eight hour movie has been used two ways. One, the way you yes. describe, which yes. is to say like a lot of people from film over the last 15, 20 years yes. have come into the world of TV and they were clearly just writing a 200 page script and then arbitrarily cutting right. where things end. But it was also used in the sense of there was long the film TV divide and film was considered superior to TV. Yeah. And as TV has become more the home of character-driven storytelling, um, it was like, oh, it's an eight-hour movie, was also kind of used as this would have been a movie 20 years ago. And now mm -hmm. it's a six-part, eight-part TV show because yeah. these movies don't get made anymore. Yeah, uh, indeed. But whatever the case, that's as you said, I think it's something Mike Flanagan excels at. He is... Uh, making episodic TV, but he's also making something that that is a cohesive a cohesive just, whole. So he just yeah. seems to have a good instinct, and it starts at the writing level of how yeah. to parcel information. Yeah, so that you have both an episodic contained arc for that particular episode and the larger narrative that is playing out over the course of the eight episodes of this or Midnight Mass. I thought Midnight Mass did the same kind of storytelling very well, um, yeah. where it's episodes but you know it it still feels like a bigger story that again moves really fast sarah mars let's get into it let's talk about the fall of the house of usher we are going to talk with no spoilers for what happens but i am going to reveal the premise of the show and kind of the mechanics of how the show works so uh i, I have to really mention that if we're going to have I any would, kind of meaningful discussion about it. I would be super interested in your regular listeners in their opinion on this. Cause I feel like, especially dealing with TV, if it's information contained in the first two episodes, it is not a spoiler. It is the foundation of the story. Sure. Sure. But I, I, I just, <laughs> I'm, you know, I, I think people can define spoilers any number of ways. I'm just going to be upfront with you about what's going on. So we, we are going to reveal the premise. We're going to be reveal foundational plot elements of the show. Uh, and then later we will do uh, episode by episodes and spoil all the episodes uh, at once. So here we go. In the fall of the house of Usher, Mike Flanagan is back with another Gothic horror series, this time adapting some of the most famous works of Edgar Allan Poe. The fall of the house of Usher re reunites Flanagan with many of the actors who have starred in his series and films over the years, starting with Gerald's game pair, Bruce Greenwood and Carla Gugino as a billionaire and the mysterious woman haunting him respectively. Each episode adapts a different Poe short story in an interconnected narrative about the downfall of the family behind a corrupt pharmaceutical company and their opioid disaster drug called Ligodone. As the ushers meet increasingly fraught fates, 
We're forced to ask if it's karma or if the Usher family really is cursed. So without talking about any specific things that happened in the show, other than that, Sarah Mars, what did you think overall of the fall of the House of Usher? I mostly liked it. Um, I have to admit my, my expectations were very high because I have really enjoyed Mike Flanagan's work in the past. Both his are you, film- are you a fan of Edgar Allan Poe? Are you a Poe head? Oh yes. Uh, um, Mars, from, as am I, I'm a from huge way fan of Poe, back. Yeah. Huge from fan of Poe. Like, I, you know, we, Poe was assigned in school and then I would go buy like the complete works and like read yeah. Poe in my yeah. spare time, you know? So huge I, fan of Edgar Allan Poe. I have read the complete works, um, including all of his shitty poetry. Um, and this time of year, you're not implying that you're not implying that all of his poetry is bad. You're saying that some of his poems are bad and you've read some of his poems are really bad in general. Uh, his poetry is terrible. Some of it is really bad, um, because he was writing it to get paid. You know, Mm. it was, he got paid per word. He would crank out a poem. It's nonsense. It's bad. (laughs) He was a much better, uh, narrative writer than he was Mm -hmm. a poet. I do think the value, I had this conversation with a with an actual poet laureate once who was like really down on Poe's po- poetry. And my defense of Poe's poetry is it's not good. And I do think there are moments in the House of Usher where people are quoting from the poems and you're just like, oh, this is <laughs> not, not good. Um, but it's, uh, it's very accessible if you are either a child who maybe your first exposure to poetry is perhaps Poe. Um, for me, I found a book in my dad's library that was the illustrated Edgar Allan Poe that included The Raven and Annabelle Lee, but also City by the Sea, The Spirits of the Dead, and Lygia. Um, those were some of the first poems I ever read. And for kids, they're really accessible. Is he William Blake? No. <laughs> um, I would say Poe is actually probably closer to Shel Silverstein where it's very rhymy, it's easy to memorize, it's catchy. And so again, if you're young and that's your first exposure to poetry, you're probably going to like it because the rhyming is instinctively pleasing. And Mm -hmm. even if you're an adult, if you're older, if you're not somebody who reads poetry, if you maybe feel intimidated by poetry, if poetry feels unaccessible, Poe can be a really good place to start because again, the threshold for entry with him is pretty low. All right, so you're not a fan of Poe's poetry, you know. I'll, I'll just we'll just agree to disagree on that. But you're a bigger fan of his narrative stuff. What did yes. you think of the show? Um, I generally really liked it. It's not Midnight Mass. <laughs> I was I was like after Midnight Mass, I'm just like <laughs> I don't know if I expected him to top it, but I was like it's not Midnight Mass. But I do think there's a lot of really fun stuff in it, especially this time of year. It is October. It is spooky season. We're two weeks away from Halloween. There are some amazing not only Poe references, but there's like Vincent Price stuff in the house of usher that I was really, it was fun. And I was like, this is really like, he knows what he's doing. He's having fun. I thought the acting was great. You know, the performances are really, really good. It looks amazing. Like really his, all of his shows have incredible production design. Um, So I just didn't think it was quite as deep or cohesive kind of my, my biggest, I have two sort of main gripes, I guess, with the show, which is one, uh, this time around, he has done the multi-generational performances before, where there's one character portrayed across decades, and there's a younger actor and an older actor and a kid actor, and we see these same people throughout the years. That has worked to tremendous effect in shows like um, The Haunting of Hill House in particular, where yet there are the kids and the adults, a little bit in Bly Manor, and um, uh, to an extent in Midnight Mass, there's a little bit of sort of 
people aging and, you know, that all happening. Um, But in that case, they were just using prosthetics and makeup. In this one, I didn't feel in some of the key performances that that there was a connect between the younger and older actors that in a couple of critical cases, it felt like everyone was playing different characters in different shows. So that was one of your issues, which I felt exactly the same way about that. And what was the other issue? Um, The other issue is, okay, so the premise of the show, there's the Usher family and they are undergoing something. Something is happening to the Ushers. Is it supernatural? Is it just bad luck? You know, at the beginning, it's like, wow, what's going on with this family? Seems bad. Um, They are a- Seems bad. That's Sarah's (laughs) review of the show. (laughs) They are a pharmaceutical billionaire empire along the lines of the Sacklers, who in real life- are the family behind Purdue Pharma, which very infamously unleashed OxyContin into the world. And if you paid attention to the opioid crisis or any of the news about that over the last literal two decades, um, there have been memos, there have been emails revealed in various lawsuits. The Sacklers, who hold executive positions in their company, who are on the board of that company, they are in positions of power, they are not innocent bystanders, They knew. They knew oxycodone was dangerous. They knew it was addictive. They knew that their marketing was misleading when they said it was non-addictive, when they promised that it was a silver bullet for chronic pain. They knew it was none of those things. They put it on market anyway. And what is it? Like 50 something thousand people have died from opioid overdoses since? Like it's, it's terrible and it's enraging. And it was legally ruled in court that they cannot be sued or held responsible for deaths resulting from Oxycontin overdose. There will be no justice in the real world. And this whole setup of the fall of the House of Usher, as much as it is an adaptation of Poe, really feels like Mike Flanagan was just infuriated, as many people were, by the fact that the Sacklers will never face real justice. And the Ushers are, let's call it fictional street justice. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yes, I I think uh, it's not a spoiler to say terrible things happen. It's called the fall of the house of Usher. So like terrible things happen to them. And you're saying that it feels like he's using these fictional characters as a way to, as a stand in for this, this catharsically. Yes. Yeah. But, but, and and there is some value in that. Yes. That it's maybe not the type of story one might be looking for, right? So they have their drug. The Ushers have Ligodone, which is, I think, a portmanteau of Ligia, which that um, poem is about a woman who dies and her husband remarries. And then the second wife dies. And then the first wife, like, overtakes the second wife. And it's kind of mysterious. There's a lot of Poe's work is about, like, doppelgangers and what's real and who is like, what is the self and things like that. Um, so Ligia kind of plays in that world, but it's Ligodone, it's Ligia and Oxycodone is the portmanteau for Ligodone. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just think like the idea of a show that is providing an emotional catharsis for the public of we are, ne- the Sacklers are never going to be held accountable. The worst thing that will happen to them in life is they will have their name taken off some cultural institutions, some museums, mm-hmm. libraries, et cetera, have taken their name off the building that they paid for. Not all, some. 
And oh my God, one time I heard that someone was mean to a Sackler kid on a playground in Manhattan. And I'm like, I don't care. Like, <laughs> like I, I know the kids are innocent and this is actually the best thing I think the show does. We can get it into it later, but it's like the fact that like the kids aren't getting invited to the Upper East Side birthday parties anymore. I'm like, oh, boo hoo. How many parents have buried their children because you lied about your drug? Who cares? Um, so I do feel like I understand where Mike Flanagan's coming from in terms of like, I feel this anger. There will be no justice. Let me imagine killing these people in just increasingly awful and fantastic ways. I totally get it. Um, I don't think that fits Edgar Allan Poe particularly well. I think there's just a little bit of a mishmash that isn't quite cohesive. It isn't quite sitting together. Because again, so much of Poe's work is about the self. He gets into some of the stuff about hubris and regret. That's in there. It's in the mix. But so much of Poe's work is just about the self. How well do you know yourself? What is yourself? And when do you cross a line where you no longer recognize yourself? And so many of Poe's characters do these terrible things. And it's like they are doing them from a perspective of outside of their self, of not even understanding necessarily why they're doing something. Mm-hmm. And so the idea of using a horror gothic show to tell a story of imagined cathartic justice on a family like the Sacklers, um, I think there's a way to do it, but I don't think grafting Edgar Allan Poe onto it is the path. I think these are two separate things. I think there's the adaptation of Poe. And then there's this thing about the ushers as a stand-in for the Sacklers and that it probably should have been two different series, but I also feel like Mike Flanagan was fucking sick of Netflix and just wanted out of that deal. And this was his last thing. Cause he was on this, the picket lines all summer with the WGA and he was pretty open about being unhappy with Netflix. Yeah. So I don't even know if it'd be accurate to say this is an adaptation of of Poe, right? Like it feels a lot more like it's inspired by Poe than I think a couple a, of the yeah. episodes are pretty good. Yeah, like pretty close, pretty close adaptations, but like others are not, right? Right. Um so we gotta start, Sarah. I'll share some of my thoughts and then let's get to spoilers. So uh, I wanna begin by saying I think this uh, miniseries is hugely ambitious. And I think Mike Flanagan is taking some big swings here. And it's actually like, I'm astonished that it works as well as it does in many ways, because, you know, what he has done is he's taken like one story, the fall of the house of usher. He's made it the overarching story, moved it to modern day, taken a bunch of different post stories and then like many adaptations of each one, all of which need to like fit in with the broader narrative, also be modernized and also deliver on horror thrills. Like that, that is the brief that he gave himself for the show. And I think for the most part, he achieves it. I think it is a very, uh, you know, it, it goes down easy. It's a breezy show to watch. Assuming you kind of like these, these, uh, you know, the, the brand of horror that Mike Flanagan is selling. So, I had a pretty good time with most of the show. Uh, I think that, you know, on the Filmcast podcast, I compared it to Seven, uh, the David Fincher movie, where um, when you're watching the movie Seven, right? It's I think Seven is one of the great crime films of all time. 
there is a perverse curiosity in wanting to know how John Doe is going to kill all these different people for their sins. You're like, okay, like, so he fed this guy until he was bursting and then, you know, kicked his stomach and caused him to burst. Like, okay, that's one of the most awful things I've ever heard. What's the next one? You know, like <laughs> your, your brain is kind of like, I kind of am curious what the next one's going to be. Uh, similar, similar dynamic here where there is this perverse curiosity, this morbid curiosity of, Oh, I kind of want to know how he adapts like the murders of the Rue Morgue yeah. and uses it to kill one of the people in the show. You know, like, how is he going to do that? That's interesting, you know? And so there is this hook that like really keeps you coming back and keeps you like wanting to know how this all ends. Um, and a lot of the horror sequences are well done. As you indicated, I think the show looks great. Uh, and it's uh, well directed. The cast is awesome. Very talented actors here. My big problem with this show is I think tonally it is a mess. I think uh, that there are some actors who don't even appear to be acting in the same, not even show, same type of show. <laughs> like some of the performances verge on camp. If not, like it left me questioning, is it supposed to be camp? Like, is it supposed to be well, you can't, campy? You, know? you can't intentionally be camp. Right, sure, but okay, fair enough. But maybe they were trying for it, right? Um, and I would use the word schlock. Yeah, I sure. I think there's a lot of schlock, and it does veer into camp. Um, yeah, but I think some of the actors got the script and understood it to be schlocky, and that's right. what they were playing. And then some of them were like, "This is intense, serious drama," and exactly. that's what they're playing. And exactly. those things do not fit. Exactly. It felt like half of these actors are in a different show than the other half. And that was a real problem. Um, the show is really earnest. You know, as you said, you have characters reciting poetry into the screen, uh, into the camera. Right. And it's like, we're just going to put, put, yeah, pose language. We're just going to put it out there front and center. And not many shows dare do that. Wes Anderson with Roald Dahl recently did that for his Henry Sugar shorts on Netflix. And it's like mm -hmm. a similar, it's like very earnest. It's like, hey, we we love this language. We're going to share it with you in its original form. You know, like that's, uh, it's rare to see a show that does that. But yeah, tonally, I think it's it's not great. Uh, I, at various times, I didn't really understand kind of what feel the show was going for. And also... I do think Flanagan's grasp exceeds or reach exceeds his grasp occasionally. Like there was one or two, too many subplots in this show. Uh, not every single subplot paid off in a satisfying way. Right. Uh, so it's messy. It's rough around the edges, but it's also hugely ambitious. And I think he gets the job done at the end of the day. I feel good recommending this, uh, but this is one of the least favorite things I, I, that Mike Flanagan has made in my, like one of my least favorite things Mike, Mike Flanagan has made. Um, what about you? Uh, let's, let's wrap this up before we get to the spoilers. Um, it's probably middle of the road for me. I think mm -hmm. midnight mass was worse. <laughs> you, you, you um, thought midnight mass was worse. Oh, not midnight than mass. I'm sorry. Midnight club. Yeah. Midnight, midnight, club. <laughs> yes, midnight okay. mass is the pinnacle. Yeah. Midnight, I think we all think midnight mass is a masterpiece. Like it's one of my um, favorite things I've ever watched. It, yeah. Yes. Midnight mass is amazing. Midnight club, the Christopher yeah. Pike adaptation, which yeah. actually I thought had very similar problems to follow the house of usher. Um, in terms of the performances are kind of all over the place. The tone is kind of all over the place. 
Um, and I, again, I wonder like how fed up was Mike Flanagan and he just wanted out of his Netflix deal and he is just cranking this stuff out. Cause I feel like, um, house of usher with yeah. like six more months of drafts in the scripting stage, he is too good of a writer. I have too much faith in him as a writer and a generally intelligent person who clearly really loves Poe. Mm-hmm. Um, to I think, think that this represented his best. Yeah, stab I think at this. I think with a little mm-hmm. bit more work, uh, a lot of these issues could have been addressed. I think COVID complications. I, I have heard this from people who worked on other series around 2021, late 2020, 2021, 2022, when people were kind of still having to bubble and work under very kind of complicated conditions in which Usher was made. They were one of the productions that had to stop and resume and they had other problems going on too. Like they just yeah. faced a lot of like problems. Yeah. They had to fire their lead actor. And like, that might be why some of the performances aren't meshing. Right. They don't, they don't match. It's like what maybe, maybe yeah, maybe they came back after some time and decided we're going to go a different way with this, you know? Well, like, and yeah. if you had a performance that a character only crosses paths, some of, some of the actors, the characters are fairly isolated from each other by the story. Um, And if your character only crosses paths with Bruce Greenwood playing Roderick Usher, the patriarch of the family, which was originally Franklin Gella, who was fired halfway through production, they went back and refilmed the Langella scenes with Bruce Greenwood, who is one of the people who I thought read the script and went, schlock, Vincent Price, got it, okay. Um, I think there's a really good chance some of these performances, some of what we're seeing was calibrated to whatever Franklin Gella was doing. Mm-hmm. And Bruce Greenwood came in with a different take. And now those performances aren't meshing. Mm-hmm. And yeah. they only reshot. They did not reshoot. As I understand it, they did not reshoot the whole thing. They only reshot Franklin Gella's scenes with Bruce Greenwood. So if you had like filmed one scene with Franklin Gella, he gets fired. They're going to reshoot that one scene with Bruce Greenwood, but the rest of your performance, which might well be calibrated off what you were taking in from Frank Langella playing right. your father, yeah, no longer makes sense with what Bruce Greenwood is doing, which is, I thought, very borderline camp in the vein of like, if you've ever seen the Vincent Price Halloween specials or like- You the, thought Bruce Greenwood's performance was camp? Oh, this? by the end, we can get there, but yes. Okay, I, I, disagree, I disagree completely. I think he took this deadly seriously. Oh, I think um, he took it. Look, this is the yeah. thing about camp. It is so misaligned and right. schlock is misaligned. Um, I think Bruce Greenwood, one, is a fantastic actor. I think yes. he is a really good, underappreciated character actor. He's one of those guys, when he shows up, I am glad to see him. I think immediately he's like, he's like Shea Wiggum is in this level with me where these guys pop up and stuff and I'm like, Good to see you. You are going to make this better right away. Um, But I think he was very much playing into the, like there's the great uh, Mask of the Red Death movie from the 1960s, early 70s. It's very mod. It is very camp. It's a Technicolor nightmare. (laughs) Um, And I think he was kind of playing in that vein. Whereas other people, and I feel like Franklin Gella must have been doing something much, much more dour because some of the performances that I felt were out of place, I'm judging off. I love what Bruce Greenwood is doing. I love what Carla Gugino is doing. I love what Willa Fitzgerald is doing in the flashbacks. Um, And I feel like they're all kind of on one page and then other people are on this other page. And I'm like, I feel like maybe Franklin Gella was just calibrated on a different uh, frequency 
And some of these characters only have one or two scenes in the eight hours and the eight episodes with uh, Roderick, their dad. And the rest of their performance is kind of off because they were responding yeah. initially to whatever Langella was giving them. Maybe we have, we have, we no, have no way idea. of confirming whether anything you just said is accurate, but it's that very is a possible. huge, that is it's a huge possible. creative upheaval to go through mid production. Yes. That yes. I feel like there would probably be some dissonance. Um, and, uh, also just being shut down for months. Yeah. Like, that's yeah, hard. Exactly. And then the conditions so, when they come back were hard. There's just a lot. <laughs> so logistical difficulties may have contributed to the final product uh, as always, as always. But anyway, uh, those are our overall thoughts on uh, the fall of the House of Usher, and you're listening to the Decoding TV podcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. All right, Sarah Mars, let's get to uh, an episode-by-episode discussion of what's going on here let's start with episode one so at this point you should assume this conversation will spoil every episode so do not yes. listen spoilers you, from here on yes out. from here forward we're going to spoil episode eight and episode one and so forth so like just assume it's all spoiled from this point forward all right so spoilers for everything from the fall of the house of usher let's begin episode one uh in this episode, we meet pharma billionaire Roderick Usher and his six detestable children, his twisted sister Madeline and Verna, a mysterious woman with unknown connections to Roderick. By the way, she's called Verna in like all the materials we've read online. She's they never ra- say very her name. rarely referred to as Verna in the show, if ever. Uh, although, as Sarah Mars pointed out, Verna is a an anagram for Raven. Uh, the family is on trial, prosecuted by C. Auguste Dupin, who alludes to an informant within the family. Meanwhile, Roderick's eldest three children have died, and he begins recounting his history to Dupin, including the time his mother died and came back to life to murder his father. Uh, I actually, this is like probably my least favorite episode of the whole show. You know, like it's just mostly set up, and I didn't find the history of his mom to be particularly interesting. And, you know, it was actually like one of those first episodes that I'm like, do I want to keep watching this? You know, so. Uh, I, I didn't think it was particularly great or that there was anything interesting to call out about it other than that they kind of start with the fact that like all the kids are dead and we're now going to learn how they die. Like, you know, they, they, they're putting like their cards on the table right from the start. And I, I do think that that's uh, worthwhile. Sarah Mars, anything worth mentioning about episode one, A Midnight Dreary? It is my um, second least favorite episode of the series. I, there's one that I dislike more. Uh, yeah, I, I was like, it's so table setting yeah. and, but I, I don't know, I guess you have to be like, cause the show is doing a lot. Like you said, it's very ambitious. It is doing a lot of things at once. So I guess you do have to have that episode where you're like, okay, here's all of the things and then we can start. <laughs> um, but this really feels like just sort of idling in neutral for 50 minutes. Totally. 
totally agreed completely. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else worth bringing up about it. I mean, um, it's it, it, yeah, it sets up like who all the family members are. And like, uh, you know, I did want to call out that uh, like succession is a very easy thing to compare this to. But I think a better comparison is Knives Out. Uh, oh, like the, for this, the, yes. The tone of Knives Out and like how it portrays rich people and how it's like a little bit goofy. Like that is a much better comparison than success i, I get my, why people book. i mean the recency bias succession just ended last summer knives out was four years ago um but also it's the i think maybe the succession stuff is mostly just the idea that there's this patriarch who is pitting his yeah. children against each other um and uh yeah i would say knives out is definitely a better touch point though just in terms of the the humor uh one thing follow the house of usher does have is a lot of humor um yeah pretty pretty dark humor <laughs> it's, but i you know i think um like midnight mass for instance not that there aren't moments of levity in that show but that's like a very dark that's, that's very dark it's very grim it's very dark uh usher is not there's like these terrible things are happening but you are the one really good thing about the first episode is you are immediately given permission to hate almost all of the ushers right. root against them and immediately start looking at the episode titles going, okay, who's going to die, which way and how awful is it going to be? Yeah. And just actively they, like rooting for them to die. Exactly. They don't seem particularly complicated. Right. Um, no. The other thing I think is interesting is like, uh, as you've already pointed out, the, uh, the way the show uses names is kind of notable. Um, so we got Lenore. He, she's the grand in, you know, in the Raven, Lenore is, I believe the love interest of the protagonist in the poem, The Raven, right? And she's but in, the idealized love interest. Right. She's very much like Annabelle Lee. She's a very idealized figure yeah. of innocence and purity and goodness, which is very rare in Poe's work. Yeah, but in the show, she is uh, Roderick kid. Usher's granddaughter, and, she, and she's a child, right? Um, yeah, she's a good the, kid. Uh, August Dupin is a detective that appears in several post stories. He's a basically a DA or ADA here, right? Or mm -hmm. a U.S. Attorney, I think actually. If yeah, mistaken, I think right? in the yeah. in the older iteration played by Carl Lumley, he's an assistant U.S. Attorney who's prosecuting the case against the Ushers. Yeah, Unlike yeah. the Sacklers, the Ushers are being hauled into court for the damage Ligadone has done. Yeah. Um, and then in yeah. the in the flashbacks, he he starts out as like an insurance investigator. So he's not right. a detective like he is in the stories, but he's still an investigator. He's yeah. still someone who is kind of unpicking some of this tangled web. Right. And uh, you also point out that Roderick and Madeline's mother is named Eliza, which is also the name of Poe's mother. So like it's just it, it's it's yeah. kind of like fun little Easter eggs to sh you know to show you that oh, yeah. uh, if, you're, if, you're if you're a big Poe po fan, fan, yeah, if you're a Poe fan, there's a million, and I'm sure I'm sure I missed. Yeah, I'm sure I missed them. Like, there's so many that I'm like, I know I missed some. All right, episode two, The Mask of the Red Death. In this episode, Prospero, Roderick's youngest son, holds a party, and Frederick's disaffected wife, Maury, seeks escape, both with disastrous consequences. In the past, young Roderick fails to convince his boss at Fortunato Pharmaceutical, Rufus Griswold, to invest in Ligodone. I do really want to shout out, okay, Rufus Griswold, back in Poe's day, was a real person. He was a Poe foe, and mm. he was a foe of Poe. And he wrote, under a pseudonym, but he wrote, like, the worst obituary. <laughs> like, just the meanest, most petty obituary when Poe died. 
<laughs> it was just so like, so of course they named this just asshole boss Rufus Griswold. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I thought the, the a- actor was awesome. I mean, you know, one of the things that, uh, that is true of this show, Michael Trucco, by the way, is the actor that plays Rufus Griswold. One of the things that's true of this show, a lot of monologues, Sarah Mars, a lot yeah. of monologuing. Like, you know, you go into Rufus Griswold's office and it's like, hey, I have this idea. Instead, you get like a 10 minute monologue about the meaning of work or whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> it's fun to see actors, you know, tear into that stuff. But it is a lot for an yeah. eight hour long show, you know, that, yeah. so uh, it's it, it, there's very few of them that are like bad monologues or anything like that. But there is a lot of telling and not showing in, in Mike Flanagan's work, I think. And and I do think Fall of the House of Usher suffers a little bit more from that than some of his other work. But, I think it was yeah. the, the epic monologues, I think, were the most eloquently rendered and cohesively fit into the show in Midnight Mass. I think that's part mm-hmm. of what made Midnight Mass so good was you did have these huge monologues that very good actors were delivering. Um, and it didn't actually feel distracting. Whereas there are many instances in Usher where it's like, shut up. (laughs) I think, I, you know, I think part of it, Sarah is because of the fact that midnight mass takes place in a small town, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, like on an Island. And it makes sense that people there would spend lots of their time talking. Right. Whereas fall of the house of Usher takes place largely in corporations and large, long monologues generally don't take place as much. I'm not saying they never happen, but like in corporations, it just doesn't feel like as it's not a fit that makes as much sense because people have to get stuff done. You know, like yeah, people are busy. So, people are busy. Okay. But anyway, uh, this episode was actually great because it was horrifying. Well, let's go full <laughs> spoiler. This is the yeah. episode. Episode one, I was like, oh. Yeah. I don't know. I like these actors. I like Mike Flanagan. I like Poe, but I don't know. Episode two is the moment where I was like, all right, however, yeah. like, schlocky this gets, I'm in. Because I'm in, yeah. the rendering of The Mask of the Red Death, I thought this was one of the better adaptations of Poe in the series. So uh, Roderick has two legitimate children, his two oldest, and then he has four illegitimate children. And the youngest of them is uh, Prospero, which is the protagonist of The Mask of the Red Death story. And they call him Perry. And I think Perry, this is this actually kind of made me feel bad because I think he has arguably the worst death and is also probably the least offensive of the Usher children. He's only like 22 or 23. Like they specifically mm-hmm. say like he's very young and yeah. he and, hasn't. And, 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 and he's an asshole, but he's like, he's like but, an asshole like any regular 23 year old would be. Yeah, he's not like, he's, he's not like specifically, yes, he wants, yeah, go ahead. He's go not ahead. part of the corporate machine of Fortunato Pharmaceutical, which is the Usher company. Um, he mostly just hasn't found his way. Like he's yeah. kind of aimless, yeah. like any 23 year old would be, yes, especially a rich absolutely. one who doesn't have to work. He's struggling to find his identity. He's got a very powerful, charismatic father. He's got these older siblings who are established in various ways. He has not found his thing. And he also has sort of like, a, I feel there's a little bit of, of condemnation on the Zoomers because he has like, oh, I just want to be an influencer. 
his right. his ambition is just to be an influencer. And it's like, how dare you, Gen Z? Yeah, how dare it's that like, be it's like your it's ambition? It's the worst thing in the world. And to right. me, it's like every time I meet a Zoomer who's like, I just want to be a YouTuber. I'm like, of course you do. The world sucks. <laughs> like, yes, absolutely. And you don't want to participate in it. And I get it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's Perry is is truly, I think, like the least offensive of the siblings. And right, but as you said, he gets the most oh. the most horrifying death. And yeah, this is when the show really it's, grabbed my attention because it's, it's like, bad. wow, it's, you, I've never, it's, I don't know that I've never seen anything like what they show before, but it's like, wow, that is horrifying and unique. And the, uh, the production design is like, yeah, it, it just, it looks, it looks spectacularly awful. terrible. Like basically. So what happens in the show is uh, he accidentally unleashes all these toxic chemicals Onto these horny party yeah, goers. He, he throws and, an uh, unlicensed rave. Is there yeah. any other kind at one of the Fortunato like derelict properties that right. is due to be condemned? There are like many old buildings. There are water tanks on the roof that would be the source of the water in the building. If you turn the taps on, the water's coming from the tanks. Um, and he decides to link them up, like to jerry rig those water tanks to the sprinkler system in the building. And during the rave at like the climactic moment, the water's going to come on and like, oh, everybody's going to be wet and horny and it's going to become an orgy. That's the plan. And I'm like, have you had sex? That's not like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're like, we're like, guys, the, the, the people, he's like, we're going to get all these celebrities there. And it's like the people that you want at the party do not pay to go to those parties. Yeah. Right? Like the, you, you pay them to <laughs> well, show just, up. Basically. Just the idea yeah. that like, we're going to douse everybody with water. I'm like, this is a kid who has, I wanted to see Perry's bedroom because I'm like, there will be a blade poster on the wall. Yeah. The, <laughs> like, uh, he's just thinking the, about the blood rave his, in blade. <laughs> his, his bed is shaped like a race car. Anyway. Yeah. Um, but so, it's acid. It's acid. It, it's so, like this stuff that burn and like all these people uh, basically melt. They basically melt. It's horrifying. And I, uh, I have like a, it's on my unreal, slightly unreal. I mean, people do get acid thrown on them. That happens. But I have like an unrealistic fear of like acid. Like just to me, that was personally horrifying. Wow. Wow, I'm just very like, triggering for Sarah Mars. I was just like, this is a really terrible, terrible thing. And Morella, Maury, Frederick, the eldest Usher sibling, his wife is there. She has a chance to leave. Verna, Carla Gugino's mysterious character, Raven, whatever you want to call her. Um, she warns her. She warns the wait staff and she warns Maury to leave. And Maury doesn't. So she is yeah. injured. Very, she's the only survivor. And it's very, yeah. very grim for her. She is like 100% acid burn. Yeah. And um, that is not a hacker's reference. It is a terrible thing that happens. Wow. Um, wow. But it, it is just like the worst, just the buildup and just knowing like, okay, his name is Prospero. The episode is called The Mask of the Red Death. He's going to have this party for this exclusive group of celebrities and influencers. It's like, this is going to go really horribly awry how was this going to go awry and for some reason the water tanks just didn't connect until the moment that people started screaming and then you're like oh my god that's because they've been dropping all the hints that yeah, yeah the building yeah. is condemned and frederick yeah. was supposed to have it demolished years ago and didn't and uh, dupan is looking into epa violations that the company has not been properly disposing of chemicals and it turns out roderick was warehousing toxic chemicals in those water tanks to avoid regulations and fines and it's which is a great poe connection of hubris and 
regret and things that like you make one decision years ago and then in the present day it has this disastrous consequence um that's great pose stuff but i just felt like oh perry doesn't deserve this like mm-hmm. this is really and the, the overhead shot of the acid melted crowd is truly one of the most gruesome things that I have seen outside of like Japanese horror in recent memory. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really good. bad. It's good stuff. It's good stuff when it comes to horror stuff, uh, horror filmmaking. So, uh, anyway, th- that's when, you know, the show had my attention. I'm like, yes. okay, show <laughs> you have my attention now. Uh, episode two, the mask of the red death in episode three, Roderick's daughter, Camille unwisely indulges in her own investigation. Uh, Leo believes he has killed a cat. And Victorine's heart mesh device, we learn, isn't really working. And this is the episode where I think uh, uh, Camille dies because she's like poking around in the Rue investigative laboratory, right? Yeah, um, they've, they've, so murder in the Rue Morgue is set in France. And Rue Morgue is the street where the house mm. is, where the murder occurs. Here, it has been rebranded as a research facility for Fortunato Pharmaceutical. It's called, and they the nickname is Rue Morgue because uh, it's animal testing and all the animals that are dying. Victorine is the eldest illegitimate child, and she is trying to create like a, like I guess kind of a pacemaker. They call it a mesh. But it's like a techie pacemaker that will keep your heart going and give you all of this data about your health. It's not working. Um, And uh, Camille, who is named after one of the victims in the short story, um, she goes to the research facility to see what's going on with Victor. Victorine and Camille have like a whole beef. They don't like each other. Um, and she goes to see what's going on with Victorine's device and the testing and the rumors about all of the monkeys. Because Victorine has been lying to Roderick about the success of the device and how the testing is going. And and Camille gets wind of this. She's like the PR maven of the family. And she has these little assistants that she calls Tina and Toby. And I think they're both veterans of the Midnight Club. Definitely mm. the blonde kid is. Toby mm-hmm. definitely is. Um, but... Uh, they she goes to Rue Morgue to see about the animal testing, and this is the episode I hated. I disliked this episode so mm. much. Tell, tell me why that is, Sarah. Well, I, it was so brutal coming off the Mask of the Red Death, which was so gross uh, mm. and genuinely horrifying, and I thought a pretty good, solid adaptation of that story mm-hmm. um, in terms of translating it into the modern world. Murder in the Rue Morgue is. If it's not the first locked door mystery, it is certainly one of the earliest and the most popular. The whole deal with the murder in the room org is that it is a locked door mystery with a monkey involvement. Mm-hmm. And when we did our Justified City Primeval um, recaps, I talked about narrative rules and that there are rules that dictate how stories work. The two rules of murder in the room org is that it is a locked door mystery with monkey involvement. And this series does not even try to make it a locked door mystery. Right. I mean, I, mean, I think... They don't we, even try. I think we just had very different expectations, Sarah Mars. I was like, things are changed so dr- dramatically. Like, we're in modern day. He's adapting <laughs> all... He's combining stories. Like, 
He's combining Fall of the House of Usher with like it is Rumor. arguably like, the most famous Poe story. Sure, sure. I'm that, that's what. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not disagreeing that it's a bad adaptation. I'm just saying after episodes one and two, I did not expect a faithful adaptation. You know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, not even so, faithful. It's <laughs> it's a locked door mystery. You're, you're saying it's not. You're you're upset that it's not even the same concept. Which they okay, don't even fair, try. I feel enough. like with the other stories, they really tried to update, like Mask of the Red Death in its original form in the Poe story, is set during the Black Death during the plague in the medieval times in Europe and the idea is that it's a bunch of rich people isolating themselves from the plague and the plague finds a way in. And this, they turn it into this exclusive rave and then, you know, death finds a way in. And I thought it's pretty clever. Like the way they updated, I don't think Perry deserved that bad death, bad, bad way to go for Perry who just kind of seemed like a little bit of a 23 year old asshole. Um, and not worse than that. But, um, I thought they made some really smart decisions about how to update that and translate the medieval setting to the modern setting and all of these things. This, I'm like, they didn't even try. Right. <laughs> Did not even well, make an fa- attempt. Fair enough. Did not bother me at all. But I will say that, you know, the episode I thought was just fine. You know, uh, I, she breaks in and then the pri- one of the primates murders her brutally. Uh, we get a little bit more sense of like Carla Gugino's powers and like what she what her game is a little bit but that's that's about it you know i do appreciate Um, i did one thing i will give this this is kate siegel's episode she plays camille she is my flanagan's wife and i do feel like she has the inside track on how to deliver performances in his worlds i feel like she was pretty keyed in and i really liked her performance as camille who was just awful like just a really terrible terrible person um i did like very much so when they go into the animal testing room and she's sort of looking for evidence that this heart device isn't working um all you really see because it's mostly carlo gugino talking to her in the scene all you really see is a single shot of one like little like monkey finger opening a latch Mm -hmm. and then it's just carlo gugino until the moment camille kind of confronts Verna, and then you see one spectacularly rendered shot of a super pissed off, disfigured yeah. chimpanzee. And that's it. And I was I, like, I love that, that they didn't waste their budget on trying to stage the attack because right. one, you are not going to do it better than nope. <laughs> mm-hmm. And two, Instead of trying to have the actual violence, just showing us the exquisitely rendered ape and how his ex- angry expression. That's all we need. That's all we need. I thought it was really well done. I just hated that they didn't even try to make it a locked door mystery. Yeah, I, I agree completely <laughs> with you. And I also like how in this episode, last episode, and also the next episode, the, the nature of Carlo Gugino's character's powers are unclear. Um, yeah, can we like, talk about that a little bit? Yeah, let's get to let's do the next episode and then let's let's talk about it. But but I think um suffice to say, uh like you, you don't know what she's capable of or if these people are like hallucinating her or what whatever's going on at this stage in in the show. Uh also in these these couple episodes, we also kind of learn a little bit more about the um uh the ushers' sexual proclivities and how yeah, they're, they're like, all fucked up. <laughs> they're hey, let's not let's not kink shame. <laughs> That's but like, true, but no, it, it's it's a real thing. Here, here's what people. here's what I can here's what I can say is they are all 
making people do things against their wills or preference, right? Like yeah. that is that is a thing that's happening, which there's, is bad. Right? There's a real streak of, it is, on the one hand, it's very inclusive. Um, Camille has her two little assistants that she is yeah. forcing into a sexual relationship. That's not great, but it, it implies that she is bi. And Leo, Napoleon, the uh, Rahul Kohli's character is implied to be like Pan. So it's very inclusive. Everybody's like just sort of, sort of into everything. Everybody's yeah. down for it all, which is great, whatever. But they're Again, also like not nice people. Like they're forcing these people they're taking to do advantage yeah they're taking advantage which is that <laughs> so that, that we can shame for sure so, celebrate the yeah. inclusivity only to a point <laughs> yeah because this 100%. is not positive representation um but i do think like I, I think mike flanagan i would love i have if i could interview him i have only one question which is which weird billionaire did you meet <laughs> because there is some stuff in here I have had the misfortune in my life to meet some very high net worth individuals and um they are all into weird sex stuff. It's not, it, it, it's truly like, I, I tried to have a conversation once with the scion of one of these families who was slightly not into weird sex stuff yet. I was like, why are they all into weird sex stuff? And his theory coming from inside the house was when you can buy anything, when you can go anywhere, when you can do and have whatever you want, weird sex stuff is all that's left. <laughs> And okay. so they're all into weird sex stuff and they're all into ancient Egypt. <laughs> they're all into ancient Egypt. They're all illegally collecting illegal ancient Egyptian mm. artifacts. <laughs> that is not made all up right. for the show. They are doing that. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Moving on to episode four, <laughs> the black cat. In this episode, Roderick reveals his diagnosis and Leo adopts a cat and it goes badly. Uh, in the past, Madeline plots with uh, while Rufus Griswold frames Roderick for irregularities at Fortunato, uh, and then Roderick meets Auguste Dupin for the first time. Uh, I thought this episode was pretty solid, uh, and I, I, I like you know how the black cat thing plays out. I like that it's like, and again, I'm, you're questioning uh, could what's his name Leo. Uh, is he just because is it, is it because there's a supernatural intervention or is it because he's like hopped out beyond his mind on drugs like you yeah you don't know what it is and uh, the idea of like buying a cat to replace the one he lost uh and then by the way later seeing like a picture of the cat it wasn't a cat at all that you know yeah. was holding. that was an amazing moment you know, this, like, so this like, was actually um my second favorite episode of the whole series yeah and i yeah, think yeah. this is one of the better adaptations of poe just in terms of taking the story of the black cat and by the way if you haven't if you're listening to this and for some reason you haven't seen the series yet like just lots of graphic animal cruelty in this episode mm, and it's yeah. it's a cgi cat they're not harming a real cat but it's yeah. graphic and it's hard and I own a black cat. And it was, I, I had, I, I had, there was a couple points in this episode where I just had to pause and like, just give myself like a minute. Cause I was like, this is really, this is really tough. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but the, it, the idea of like Leo taking this Mjolnir Thor hammer and just completely like <laughs> wrecking his house. It's an amazing idea and visual, you know, Leo to, is yeah. uh, played by Rahul Kohli, who yes. I love to watch him as an actor. He's great. Um, and he plays kind of, he's like a video game person. They kind yeah, of, you, some, you don't really see it. He's like a Twitch. He seems like a stream. He's, Twitch like, streamer a, he's like a Twitch kind of. streamer. And maybe he has used some of his inheritance money to fund video games. Like they kind of say at some point he's passing himself off as like a game creator. And his siblings are like, mm, you just give him money. Like you have created nothing. And that's, that is actually a theme 
for all of the ushers is that they create nothing. They contribute nothing. Like Perry is trying to get his dad to give him money to invest in like a whiskey or a brandy or an alcohol brand. And it's not anything he has created. It's something he found that he wants money to put into. And Roderick did not create Ligodome. He found it and wants Rufus Griswold to put money into it. He believes it has potential. And uh, Napoleon, Leo, is a video game guy, but he doesn't create the games. He's not writing the games or doing the art or anything. He's just like a Twitch streamer who maybe promotes games. It's not super clear um, that none of them create. None of them contribute. Which again, I'm like, Mike Flanagan, which weird billionaire did you meet? Because <laughs> those people, again, I have met a few, they will tell you they are the masterminds. And they never are. Mm. Steve Jobs was not an engineer. He was probably the 20th century's greatest ad man in the same way that Thomas Edison did not invent the light bulb. He was probably the 19th century's greatest ad man. Mm -hmm. um, that is a consistent theme. Elon Musk has invented nothing. He just buys companies who pay him to go away. <laughs> like, and it's really pronounced in the House of Usher, which is why I think Mike Flanagan wanted to make a series about punishing a billionaire for societal ills. Right. And that is great. And it just doesn't quite graft onto the post of super well, except mm -hmm. in this episode, because at this point, Napoleon has lost two of his siblings. And... He's paranoid. He's also a drug addict. So he's out of his mind on Coke, which is making his paranoia worse. He hates his boyfriend's cat. He thinks he killed the cat in a drug-fueled outrage. And everything that happens to Napoleon, I think it's really well rendered, where to his boyfriend, he appears to be in a downward grief-fueled spire that is enhanced and made worse by the cocaine. Whereas we are privy to, no, something's going on. There's this weird lady who keeps showing up and talking weird to all these siblings. And that cat is fucking weird. Um, but yeah, he has all these like Marvel props. He's like collected like Marvel yeah. movie props. And he uses Thor's hammer to destroy his apartment. Yeah. Um, this was a fun episode. I mean, it's, animal yeah, cruelty aside, this was a fun episode. This is a good one. Also, thanks, Sarah Morris, for pissing off three separate rabid fan bases at once with that uh, uh, description just now. Uh, Steve Jobs fans, Elon Musk fans, and also Edison fans. The, no, the I, I notoriously be... the three largest, uh, most no. rabid fan bases on the internet. All right. Anyway, <laughs> episode five, uh, The Telltale Heart. In this episode, uh, Victorine is hearing things. Uh, Dupin tells the truth, and Arthur Pym, the usher's creepy fixer, makes a possible connection to uh, Carlo Gugino's character. In the past, Rufus Griswold reveals he knows the truth about the usher's parentage, and they join forces with Dupin to take down Griswold and Fortunato. Uh, well, let's talk about let's like save all of the past stuff and how that all co coincides for the for the final episode. Um, I'll just say, in terms of this kill. Um, I thought this was awesome because I, I, I the Telltale Heart is a very well regarded, like well known story, and then you start hearing the heart, like she starts hearing the heart beating, and it's like it doesn't sound like a heart; it sounds like something weird. It sounds like something mechanical, mm -hmm. um, like some machinery, and it's like that's a weird 
interpretation of the heart. And then you find out it's this heart valve that she's trying to make that she had like installed on her dead partner. The body uh, horror in this episode is really good. Yeah. I, I mean, I, if, you're, I, if you're a body I, horror person, this is a good episode of body horror. It's great. The way like the reveal happens when she's dead and like the performance of like, she's, she's crazed and like, doesn't really understand the implications of what she's done. Everything I thought was, was pretty awesome. Uh, I, I enjoyed this one quite a bit. Sarah Mars, any thoughts on the telltale heart? Yeah. I, I also like this and I'm, I'm trying to find the actress's name. She was in, um, she was in the how the haunting of blind manor. Um, she is Tania Miller plays Victorine, yeah. who is the surgeon daughter. She's one of the illegitimate children. She's trying to make this device. The device is what we hear ticking throughout the episode. I thought it was really, all of that stuff was really well done. Again, just spectacularly gross body horror. And then I really love Roderick Usher's uh, reaction to and this is where I feel like Bruce Greenwood was interpreting this as like kind of a schlocky Vincent Price thing is he's very much just like, he takes a look at what, at what Victorine has done and just goes, well, <laughs> he has like no reaction except to say, we have to clean this mess up. Um, which I thought was really, kind of, that was, kind of, that was not my interpretation of that at all. Like, I, I think I, he had I like th- a big reaction think, to it. I think you and I just had completely different reads on Bruce Greenwood's <laughs> re- performance. Cause like uh, my, my interpretation is Bruce Greenwood was uh, the word schlock does not even come to mind when it comes to Bruce Greenwood. I thought he brought a lot of dignity to this character. And when he sees Victorine's dead partner, he is like horrified and frightened for his own life like th- those those are my emotions that i read coming i was off of i was getting a lot of, I, I i will say like the schlockiness of his performance i think comes in in the last episode we'll get there. okay fair, yeah um, fair but like but the whole time it, it's it, it was a very yeah, I, go ahead. he is relying on victory he okay so roderick has been diagnosed with codicil which is a long and complicated medical name but basically it's a um stroke disorder and in the first episode we actually see him collapse and perhaps have an hallucination brought on by an ischemic stroke. And he is deteriorating rapidly. And one thing that is going to happen to him is one of Codicil's um, symptoms is rapid onset dementia. Mm -hmm. And so he knows he's losing his mind. And so some of what's happening in the show is like, is it real or is Roderick hallucinating? Is he starting to overlap time because this dementia is is starting to eat away at his memories? Um, he is in a race against the clock and he is relying on I never quite understood the connection between like basically a pacemaker and dementia. Um, I was like, I don't quite get it, but mm-hmm. he is relying on Victorine to have this device to somehow save him. Um, and so when he sees that she has killed her partner who was the doctor leading the study to get this heart mesh device, you know, um, into human trials um, and flayed her open and pinned the device into her chest cavity. (laughs) And it's the device sticking and the woman is not alive. (laughs) She is not alive. Uh, It's very silence of the lands. I thought like that, that splaying of the body. I was like, this is, Big time. Who the props team had like a lot of fun on this show. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I kind of saw like Roderick, yeah, he is there's a moment where he's looking at Victorine of like, oh, she doesn't realize she doesn't realize what she's done. Cause Victorine panicked. Yeah. In a moment of panic, 
she threw a bookend and killed her partner. And she is just in pure panic mode from then on out. And so he is having a moment of, of connecting Victorine killed her does not compute that she has killed her. Victorine is in La La Land. She has cracked the strain. The pressure has just cracked her. Um, And also the disappointment that the device is a failure. This is the moment where two things are revealed to Roderick. Victorine killed her partner. And the heart mesh that he was relying on as a ticket out of his you know, terrible diagnosis doesn't work. And what I was getting from Bruce Greenwood in that moment is that disappointment is overshadowing the feeling of like, my daughter killed a woman who I knew and cared about, you know, Hmm. (laughs) like it's, it's that disappointment of like, Oh, and then he calls Arthur (laughs) Pym to clean it up. (laughs) Hmm. Interesting. I I think it's just interesting that we both read it very, we both, Read the Bruce Greenwood thing very differently. Think, I'm just so. not yeah. giving Roderick Usher a lot of grace. Like yeah. I think you're giving him a lot of grace of like he's got this dignity, and I'm like he's a fucking murderer. I'm just I'm not even talking. <laughs> I'm just talking psychologically about psychologically tortured his children. <laughs> I'm just talking about the performance. I'm just talking about yeah. the performance. Like I think he's playing Roderick Usher like Brian Cox played Logan Roy, uh, and. That that's that's all that's that is I, my feeling. So it, I would actually and it's give a, him the credit of I think he has more gravitas. Sure. I think that's what, yes, he's that's playing he's Roderick Usher as that's like a very eminent, yeah, very yeah. eminent person. Um, but then there's always these little pokey pokies of like, oh no, this woman is dead. Fuck the hard device doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a little bit of that. In in any case, I, I thought this was a good episode and a good reveal. Um Yeah, Tania Miller is really good. Really, yeah. really good. Yeah, agreed. All right, episode six. Uh Tamerlane is losing it. Frederick's losing it. Madeline's losing it. Roderick's losing it. And Pin makes a startling discovery. Um, and in the past, Dupin and Roderick continue investigating Fortunato on their own. This is the episode where the gold bug fitness program is revealed to the world. Uh, and then this is actually one of the cooler kills in the show. Oh, was like with all the glass and the very slow cinematic. motion. Very cinematic. Yeah, very. Uh, yeah, really good stuff. So, um, so I dug all that. I think this is a good time to now talk about the Carlo Gugino character because basically as the show goes on, Carlo Gugino intervenes more and more in the deaths. Like the first few deaths, it's like, oh, those could have happened without any supernatural assistance at all, right? Uh, And then like as time goes on, it's like, oh, she is just actively displaying supernatural abilities now explicitly. And I got to say, I was a little bit disappointed by that. I wish they had kind of kept it as though like it could have been either way the whole time. Whereas like towards the end, it really feels like there's supernatural intervention for a lot of these deaths, including like Mary McDonald's character trying to grab her and then her just vanishing. Like, that's just like, okay. Like, yeah, at that point she's fully magic. Um, she's, just, she's, I, magic. she's just a magic person. You know, so, I am. Yeah. I'm going to disagree with you a little bit. Um, sure, I think ahead. from the beginning, from Prospero, the first death we see, it's clear that she has, otherworldly abilities she is a supernatural figure but within the world of the show those first few deaths must read to the public as totally and tragically coincidental mm-hmm. prospero through this party didn't know what was in the water tanks it's a horrible accident 
um, Camille was investigating and an angry science monkey killed her. Um, and Napoleon is high on coke and appears to, to die by suicide. That's what his death looks like to Julius, his boyfriend, and everybody else is that he died by suicide, uh, falling off his balcony. Um, or maybe not even suicide. Maybe he was just high and he fell off the balcony. But it just seems like he, he fell. That's what happened. We see Carlo Gugino warning everyone to leave the party. We see her, and I'm going to call her Verna because that's how she's referenced in show notes. We see Verna talking to, we see in the sequence of events in, in Rue Morgue is we see the monkey open the cage. We see Verna talking to Camille in the laboratory room that is housing all of the monkeys. We see her in like a quick smash. Like we see her go. It's not a misty wispy thing. It's like, it's like, I think Camille takes a picture with her camera and what the picture reveals as we're seeing Carla Gugino, what is revealed on the phone camera is the angry ape. So it's clear that like, Oh, she's like a supernatural person. (laughs) She's popping up in all these places. And then in the black cat episode, the cat that she gives Napoleon is a rat and also we see when he has the the dupe the dupe cat the dupe pluto um he'll see its eyes flashing in the dark which if you've ever had a cat their eyes refract refract light so at night especially if you have a black cat like i do often you all you see are their little glowing eyes in the dark and he sees that and then we see that same thing in her eyes and she takes on the injuries of the cat as mm-hmm. Leo is trying to kill this cat. He gouges its eye out and we see her with her eye gouged out. It is clear to us, the audience, she is a supernatural figure. But within the world of the show, those deaths must just look like tragic coincidence. A terrible accident, another terrible accident, a you know unfortunate coat bender, maybe suicide situation. Uh, so to them, it all seems coincidental and random until Pym, Arthur Pym, played by Mark Hamill, who is also sort of in the I'm doing a weird voice. I'm playing this very like sketchy right. character in a very sketchy way. Um, he starts to connect the dots that she's present. She met she was at the party. She met Camille. She was the security guard who let her into the laboratory. She was the worker at the Humane Society where Leo gets the second cat. Um, you know, and he's connecting the dots between the kids. And at first he thinks maybe she's another illegitimate uh, usher. Yeah. And she's angry because she was never recognized or whatever. Like maybe she's an angry, illegitimate usher. And then he starts to find pictures of her in the past. And this is actually where the show lost it for me a little yes, bit. Yes, absolutely. I was like, I don't need her standing right. next to like Clinton and Kennedy and all these ill-fated people and evil people they show her with Trump. And I'm like, I don't need any I, of that. I don't think you need this whole entire subplot of like trying to identify her from the security camera footage. Like she's not in the security camera footage, you know, like just she's su- freaking supernatural. You don't need like the, the whole point of all that from my perspective was just so she and Pim could have the meeting at the end. Yes. And that was a cool meeting. I really liked that. That was Which like a nice. Which you still could have had. You still could have had. You don't need that <laughs> entire subplot of them. Yeah, I, I agree. My We're, problem yeah. with Rue Morgue, it's not a lot door mystery. Taking her out of that security footage, if Camille, if all they see on the security camera is Camille walking into the building and yes. somehow, and there's no guard. 
at an empty station and Camille, who should not have an access card, somehow accesses that room and they do not know how. Now it's a locked door mystery. <laughs> okay. All right. I, I mean, it's that simple. I just, <laughs> I, I did not like, I liked a lot of the stuff where they were doing this thing. I was like, we, the audience are privy to the fact that this woman is appearing to these children and then they're all dying and she is somehow involved to the world of the show, to the other ushers and the public and Dupin and everything is, it just seems like a horrible series of accidents and coincidences. Um, I actually thought Verna was by the end of the series, I was kind of thinking like, is she the Morrigan, the Celtic goddess of death, war and fate? Mm -hmm. One of, one of whom's signs is Ravens. Mm -hmm. Um, She sort of displays Morgan like, ability and thought process and and the way the Morgan functioned in that mythology, she seems to kind of be upholding some of that. Well, Um, here is my case for why I don't like it (laughs) is uh, the whole time. Like one of the central questions that uh, Roderick and, and Madeline asked themselves, is like, was it all in our head? Like, was it a real deal that we made with the devil or was it all in our head? And that is like a haunting mystery. And the show could have kept that ambiguity until the end. Yes. Uh, it chose not to. It chose not to. And like made clear that Carlo Gugino is actually a supernatural force intervening on things. But it could have easily just not done that. It could have easily just had her like all the, the deaths could have happened coincidentally. And maybe Carlo Gugino is there. But maybe she's not actually a real supernatural force. Maybe she's just like, I don't or, know, a goat. Or like, maybe... Maybe she is a supernatural force and you just never answer that question for the characters in the show. Maybe Madeline and Roderick never really know. Exactly. Um, And that's fine. I I agree. I agree completely. So anyway, um, so episode six, uh, the gold bug. Oh, um, I did think it was like really horrifying. Like the idea of being up there uh, on stage and things are going wrong. That's like a very mortifying idea. People, you know, public speaking is one of America's most feared things. And so the idea of like going up there and it going all, all wrong, it's, it's horrifying. I will say um, the speech and the whole setup felt pretty underwhelming uh, for a presentation of this caliber. Like it felt like they're like, really limited budget wise. It looked like the um, end of Megan the horror movie about the dancing murder. I doll? would argue the end of Megan was more ambitious than this um yeah like this this looked like they're starting to run out of budget this this look yeah it looked like basically kind of like they did this announcement in like a hotel ballroom pretty much actually not something smaller than a hotel ballroom basically like a like a conference like a conference room they they clearly spent the money on the death scene right um that's where the money went was the death scene, which is a good allocation but it was like oh that's kind of yeah anyway but the idea Uh, that one of the ushers would launch her goop style wellness grift from ballroom C at the airport Hyatt <laughs> was like, was like, what is happening? I agree. It, it was just very, it was shockingly cheap looking given how much buildup there had been for this and everything else that we've seen in the show. So this, but the death scene really was incredible. The glass mm-hmm. and the falling and the slow motion. Amazing. And they horrible. Spent the money it the was right another way. one to think about like, Oh, that's a really yeah. bad, bad way to go. These and are I love, bad I love the way he, I love the way he used like deaths. I love the way he used like slow motion and then like the slow motion and then it like smash cuts to like regular motion. Yeah. Uh, it was all really well done. So n- nice kill, but a weird, okay episode otherwise. All right. The Pit and the Pendulum. 
in which we ask the question, is Frederick the worst usher? Meanwhile, Madeline tries to save herself, but Carla Gugino's character has other plans, and Juno stands up for herself. In the past, Madeline envisions Fortunato remade as a tech company, while Roderick commits a betrayal. Let's talk about a, a comment you made earlier in this podcast about how some of the past and present uh, performances didn't necessarily line up. Uh, Mary McConnell's performance, Mary, uh, sorry, Mary McDonnell is an incredibly talented actor and her modern day performance as Madeline, I thought was pretty disastrous. Like I thought Mm -hmm. it was just really over the top and didn't fit with the rest of the show. And more importantly, didn't fit with younger Madeline, who I thought was a really amazing character. And it's like, oh, I want to see. What where this character goes? Like what younger, happens with this character? Younger Madeline is played by Willa Fitzgerald. Um, and yeah. I do want to shout out, uh, it's a little bit, the past sequences are a little bit a Reacher reunion because it's Willa Fitzgerald mm. and Malcolm Goodwin as young Dupin and they were both in Reacher. Anyway, um, she is playing Madeline in a way that by this episode, I was like, Madeline of 1979 would straight up, smother Roderick in his sleep. Like she would not be trying to save him or his children. She would not be trying to, I don't know. There was a whole lot of like, she doesn't turn on Roderick until like very late in proceedings. And I'm like, no, I feel like she would have been trying to poison Roderick this whole time. <laughs> the, perform- <laughs> the performance doesn't match. The character is not believable. Like, yeah, the past there's a and big disconnect. Really, there's a it doesn't big really join, disconnect, un- unfortunately. In the, yeah. the Madeline character, which undermines a lot of the late stage drama in these last couple episodes. Also, I think Madeline has a very bizarre, undefined accent in the first couple episodes that is then. I pretty much dropped by the end as far yeah, as I, I don't, so, I don't know yeah. what that, I don't know if that was Mary McDonald. Like I, there was just, it, and like, why, why would, why would she have an accent? And then her brother doesn't, it just doesn't make any sense. Anyway, whatever. Yeah. Um, so, uh, this death. Okay. The idea of, uh, and that, that's another thing is like Henry Thomas, very talented actor. I thought he was awesome in haunting of Hill house. I thought he was great in Dr. Sleep. Um, but, I did not enjoy his performance in this show. Like uh, it was. Oh, ma- I, ma- I loved yeah. it. <laughs> I, 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 he was great towards the end when he like was getting super evil, but the, the entire show, he's basically like Roman Roy from succession, but with no, no redeeming qualities whatsoever. Right. Like uh, it's, he's the worst but usher. He, <laughs> but that's like, that might be compelling for like a movie, but like to watch like eight episodes of that or seven episodes. To, is, like, he's how good. many in the previous episodes? How much is he really in? I mean, you're not really, fo- he's not the focal point until this episode. Um, I think, yeah, he's terrible. His little terrible ponytail is the immediate clue that he's the worst. Um, he does. He is married to Maury who seems pretty normal and they have Lenore who is actually genuinely right. a good kid. Like Lenore yeah. is on the ball. She is sharp. Roderick at one point describes her as the best of us. Unquestionably. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and Frederick is awful. And he has a fucking bowling alley in his living room. It's just like every awful rich guy trope is in him. Um, and I think Henry Thomas was having a ball playing all of that. And then playing the psychological devolution because Mary Maury was at the, the sex rave. She was at the acid right. sex rave. And 
had told him she was going to meet friends for dinner. So he is now, he thought he was so in love. He's a total wife guy. Thought he had something none of his siblings did, which was a good, stable relationship. Um, Even something his father didn't have. It's like his marriage to Maury is the one thing none of the other ushers have. And then it's all blown up in the second episode when Maury is discovered at the sex rave. Mm-hmm. And then he's like, well, why was she there? Was she cheating on me? Blah, blah, blah. And he just devolves down. Yeah. His his um, descent into madness I found to be very compelling. But uh, the idea that he had basically zero redeeming qualities, it's, it's just, it's tough to watch a, a show that has a character like that. And... And you can bring out the kind of likability or charisma via the performance, even if it's not in the script. And I don't think he really brought that. That no. said, uh, you know, the idea of him being like a caretaker of his wife and like subjecting her to physical abuse, abuse. Torture. and torture is is torture. like is like genuinely upsetting and really well brought out in the show. Um, his death scene with the the pendulum and all that stuff, it's whatever like it's cool to see a building fall apart from the inside that was like a cool visual effect but oh I've i seen... don't think that was a visual effect i think they demolished oh something well I what think... are, i mean yes but like well, that you know, would be show... a visual effect it wasn't a computer effect i think they really demolished right, right, right. but I mean, I mean like you know <laughs> like showing him in there is a visual yeah. like showing the pov of someone who's in there you know like yeah, yeah. um the uh so that was really cool um but otherwise, it's like I've seen, you know, more gruesome kills in the Saw movies, which are not nearly as good as this show. Uh, so I, I thought this one was this episode was only OK. Um, any other thoughts on episode seven, The Pit and the Pendulum? Uh, no. All right. Let's get to the final episode. And now, like everything can be brought together. We can talk about every other remaining topic. Right. So Pim has an encounter with Carla Gugino's character and he's like, I doesn't, he declines to make a deal with her. You know, she, she tries to make a deal with him, but uh, you know, and, and basically uh, tries to get him to do more evil things if he will. Uh, and in exchange, she'll like make sure he doesn't go to prison, but he declines. He's like, I'll take my chances. Um, a great scene. I thought between two equally evil people. Um, well, is she evil though? That's the thing. Like, that's why I'm like, is she the Morrigan? Because people want to, she's a death goddess. She's the goddess of war. People want to think of her as an evil, bad entity, but death is inevitable. Fate is inescapable. You could argue war is in human nature. The Morgan is just the worst of human impulse. And I don't think Verna is not making them do these things. She's there. She's maybe arguably facilitating, but she doesn't give Prospero the idea for the rave and the water tanks. She doesn't well, th- this, make Leo. This, this, she tries to get Leo to not adopt the cat. This is my objection is like by the end, she is actively intervening, like with the uh, with the medication, right? With uh, what's his name? Yeah, um, I think I think, you know, with with, with um, Frederick, with, Frederick with, she's yeah. telling him to put she's telling. Right. And the, like that's. Yeah. And, and yeah, but I agree. Then also with when she kills Lenore, uh, she seems to be broke a little broken up about it, right? She's and it's very, like okay, very right. Sad. So it's like yeah. So that's uh, that that is definitely sort of points in your book. Um, um, but I would say too, the ushers that she offers and out are notably Perry and Leo, 
who are going to die because that's the deal that she made. Right. Is the deal that Roderick and Madeline struck on New Year's Eve 1980 was they would get away with all of their terrible crimes up and including future crimes, which I think is how Flanagan is processing in the real world. There is no justice for people like the Sacklers. And it's like, well, they had to have made a deal with the devil to just get away with everything. Mm-hmm. But the cost is, well, everybody hates them. Um, and in this world, they've made this deal and their fate is inescapable. And their fate is, she told them, all of your bloodline will die before you and then you will die. You will get away with what you have just done. You will get away with whatever you do in future, which is why Dupin can never pin anything on Roderick. And yet, someday your fate will come due. And when she meets with Lenore, she is very sad. And she says, did they not understand what bloodline meant? (laughs) Because now Lenore is part of the curse. And she has to die. Maury can live and will. She tells Lenore, everything good your mother is going to do. She will recover and she will do good things. And it's because of you. Um, but Lenore is an usher. She's in the bloodline. She has to die. Fortunately, she gets a peaceful, painless death. Right, right. I mean, I think Carla Gugino's character is amused most of the time. And also, Sarah Mars, uh, when she made that deal, uh, I'm I'm just gonna put this out there. She didn't include all the relevant details, okay? Uh, she, she said your bloodline will die. <laughs> no, but she didn't say they're going to die horrifyingly painful deaths. And maybe, do you think, you, you think maybe if she said that, that would have been, um, that might have shaped their decision making a little bit, I think. I don't right? think Pat Adeline would have given a shit. <laughs> if you told me, if you told me the same deal and also like in one scenario, everyone's going to die peacefully surrounded by loved ones. And in the other scenario, they'll all die horribly painful deaths uh, in grotesque fashion. That might change my how I approach that Maybe. deal. I'm just going to put I, that out there. I do think, um, again, she tries to give Perry and I, uh, Perry and Leo are cursed. They're going to die. But she tries to give them an out from the terrible death. And you wonder if mm. either of them had taken her up on it, would they have just had a, would Leo have just snorted some coke, gone to bed and died right, like, of an right. overdose? And it just would have been, he went to sleep and he never woke up and it was painless. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Perry, she also seemed quite sad about the fact that Perry, because again, he's young and he really hasn't done anything. Um, yeah. But he's an usher, so he's got to die. And she does kind of, when they're in the bedroom together, she kind of tries to give him, like, we can leave. You know, she All tries right, fair, to give him that out. Fair point. I think you've made your case, and I, I think I respect it that, like, maybe Carla Gugino's character is not evil. Let's talk about. She's only evil in the way that death is evil. How did the stuff in the past work for you? I thought it was pretty good, but it was drawn out way too much. Like what happens with the past stuff is you as the audience member, you get ahead of the storytelling, right? Like you already, I don't know about you, but I I kind of already predicted it's going to be cask of Amontillado. He's put his boss behind the wall. And so then by the time we get to episode eight, we already know What's going to happen? Like, yeah. I don't know. If, I was not surprised by that. In the they least. were not seeding it as a surprise because Roderick keeps going to the basement and staring at the wall. Right. And he hears a it, mysterious jingle and it's like, it's the cask of Amontillado. Right. Which is, which is fine. But like, 
not necessarily for eight hours, right? Like it's, yeah. it's, it's fine if it's like three hours and it's like, oh, okay. No, but it's like, okay, by the time we get to this big climactic woman, we already know how it's all going to play out. And so it does sap a little bit of the suspense from it. I kind of um, almost thought they should have shifted the order of the past scenes so that we start at the end and work back to the front, like work mm. back to the beginning, like start with New Year's Eve 1980, where they make the deal with Verna and then work back to how did they arrive at that moment um, instead mm. of starting with them as children and their dad yeah, yeah, is the founder yeah, yeah, yeah. of Fortunato, but they're illegitimate and he won't acknowledge them and their mom is bonkers and then she dies and then she's alive and then she kills their dad and then she's dead again. And they're it, well, weird. Instead, <laughs> the path they, instead, the path they chose is to make it a big kind of reveal. But like, yeah. the problem is that the reveal has been sapped of all its power by that point. And, and yeah. if, if they had done a different, if they had optimized for something that wasn't shocking twist, if they had optimized for we're showing the parallelism between or the tragic nature of starting so doe eyed and bushy tailed. And then like the downfall from the, you know, like if they had structured it a different way, it might've been a little bit more impactful. Well, and it's so. also undercut by the fact that those younger character performances just don't match yeah. what the older actors are doing. Most, especially in the case of Madeline, but Zach Guilford plays the young Roderick. And I didn't think he particularly matched what Bruce Greenwood was doing. I never, yeah. Really, I really didn't buy that Willow Fitzgerald's young Madeline grows up into Mary McDonald's Madeline. I also kind of didn't buy that Zach Guilford grew up into Bruce Greenwood. I'm like, I don't, yeah. this is, there's just a big disconnect. And they probably would have worked better and been more effective if I was seeing some of what I'm getting from the uh, older actors in the younger performances. But like younger Madeline, again, like I just think she would have smothered Roderick in his sleep. And yeah. And she also, like, I can't imagine that Madeline taking a side role at Fortunato, like, and being okay with it. Like, I can... Right, right. I, I, I was like, wait, is she supposed to be... The more we learn about young Madeline, and I'm like, yeah. wait, but in the in the current timeline, Madeline and Roderick are still close. They're still copacetic. Like, she's doing her tech thing. He doesn't seem to have a problem with it. She's like... Is she the COO or something of the company? She right. has a role. And I was like, I don't think younger Madeline would have been cool with being sidelined. Well, the the whole proposition is like, you'll never need to listen to another man ever again. And it's like, but she does. Her but brother. your job is you got to listen to your brother. You know, like it yeah. is, it's, it, it is a, yeah, it's a disappointing ending and sort of adult life for Madeline. Also like the whole tech company, the algorithm completely half-baked as a plot line it's and like literally just so they can have the nevermore the nevermore and it's like that's okay it. That's yeah it. and <laughs> so that's that's what i'm talking about about like that was like one subplot too many you didn't need to have a little bit of black mirror in your yeah. show um there's already enough strong elements to it so so yeah like like there's certain elements of the show that are pretty disappointing but there's also a lot of really amazing elements like all the kills or most of the kills are really great um I love Bruce Greenwood and um, you know, many of the actors do a good job as well. So uh, any other thoughts on how this ended? I thought like Bruce Greenwood's character betraying Madeline at the end, you know, that was kind of effective when she comes up and has the rocks in her eyes and starts choking him. That seemed a little bit goofy. Well, that's where it gets um, into schlock and yeah, it's very yeah. like Vincent Price Halloween special, 1963. <laughs> that I will completely agree with you on. Right? Um, like, yeah. But it's also, I mean, there is a post story. I think it's, it's something the mummy said or words from a mummy. It's mummies in the yeah. title. Um, but it's also, again, like real rich people are super hung up on the Pharaohs. So 
<laughs> I was like, this fits. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But I thought that moment was fun in, in, in its schlockiness. It just did not fit the tone. Like you said at the beginning, it didn't fit the tone of the rest of the show. It came out tonally. That came out of nowhere. I mean, uh, until the end, I was guessing what the tone of the show was. You know, I didn't, yeah, I didn't have a good handle on what the tone of the show was. Very um, up and down. Yeah, I, very I, up and down. Yeah. I so. liked the little, um, the little bit at the end with Verna in the cemetery and all of the ushers. And I, I, I found myself thinking, what does this look like to the public? Because Dupin mentions he goes to the graves. He's talking to dead Roderick and he mentions that he is retired um, he did not get to prosecute his case that all of the ushers being dead has basically killed his case. So sort of like real life, they were never really prosecuted for Ligadone. Um, and I did have this kind of moment though, where Verna shows up and she lays like a token on each grave and it's representative of that person's death. It's like the cat collar for Leo, it's yeah. the mask for Perry, et cetera, et cetera. And I was like, None of these people deserve it. I feel like that would have been such a more powerful moment if all she did was lay the feather on Lenore's grave and leave the rest empty. Just nothing. Mm -hmm. No acknowledgement of the rest of them. Just leave the feather for Lenore, who was truly the only innocent party. I mean, arguably Perry a little bit, but... The thing I remember more is, yeah, the, the Dupin thing. And it's like, this really cements this whole show as this wish fulfillment. Yeah. This, this fantasy of like... I'm going to go home to my wife and kids and, and our I'm love, rich. our love is more meaningful than any of the wealth you'll ever well, have. It, you know, notably, like, it's not wife and kids. He, he does say he, he oh, uses sorry, I apologize. male pronouns. I'm, so we do I'm learn that Dupin is a, is an elderly gay man. Yes. Um, which sorry, I love I for him. Yeah. But he is, he's going home the to my of, partner and kids, you know, like he, he's going home to his husband and their kids yeah. and their grandkids. And he is saying, I am the rich man because yes. I have this family and this love, which is truly how we comfort ourselves in a world that is completely broken. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. It's <laughs> we like, must be happier than rich people. <laughs> th- that's exactly right. That's exactly right. We must be happier than rich people. That's that's kind of which we probably are. The ones I've met are fucking miserable. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe you know. Uh, um, th- th- that's the fantasy that shows like Succession and this show indulges. Like, yeah. hey, they might have every uh, one of their material needs met, but they are truly miserable on the inside. Um, but. I don't know. I don't buy I, it. I also just kind of felt like, again, it's, it's I think, that, I think it's a lot the, of them are happy. That's what I'm saying. But it's anyway. the ill marriage <laughs> of the Poe stuff and the pharmaceutical catharsis stuff, the Ligodone stuff is, I don't think we needed the show to make that point. I mean, I love it for Dupin to be like, I didn't get to prosecute my case. They dismissed it because you're all dead. I retired. I'm going home to my family. Fuck you forever. Um, I, that's great for him. But I was like, I don't need the whole, like, I'm really the rich man because my family loves me and you're yeah. all dead. I didn't need that. Um, I just, I didn't really need the moral of the story. Right. It's like, I don't like need This yeah. could have just been the ushers are a weird fucking family and they're all dying in these weird fucking ways. And there's this weird fucking lady. And is it connected? Is it supernatural? Is it a curse? Or is it just an epically bad run of luck for this these terrible people are making terrible decisions and they're dying is that a curse or are they just terrible people making terrible decisions and you know i think it would have just been totally fine just as that i completely agree i think it's much more sprawling than that and it goes into different time periods and there's this well again there's there's this carla gugino character that may or may not like or actually is real in the context of the show but I think you're right that if it had been a little bit less pat, if it had been a little bit 
more ambiguous, I think it would have been a stronger show. And, and I just think that's take where all the pharmaceutical stuff out of it. I really, I really believe Mike Flanagan had two ideas, the opioid show and the Poe show. I don't and actually. They probably I, I, should have been separate things. You you brought this up when we first when I first like invited you to do this with me, and I don't know that I agree because uh, uh, there's nothing inherently wrong with using pharmaceuticals in my opinion. Like no, they they wanted just, to they they he, like what is he going to do? Is, he has to explain somehow. No, he doesn't. Why they're, they're just rich. weird. They're just weird rich people. They're just a generationally wealthy rich family, and it could be a lean, mean, gothic horror of these creepy, weird rich people having creepy, weird deaths. Do not answer the question about Verna. Is she magic? Is she not? Leave that ambiguous. I I agree with that last part, but I think in the world we live in today, it is borderline irresponsible to make a show about rich people uh, that is this tone and not comment on wealth well, the, the, in some I, way. I think like, the comment is they are they are making bad decisions. Prospero makes a bad decision. Leo makes a bad decision. They make bad decisions. They make selfish decisions. We see them, like you said, with Camille, they are all forcing people to do things against their will. They're using Arthur Pym, their fixer, for bad things. They're cleaning up messes. Like, I had a question after Telltale Heart. I'm like, wait, did did the public in this world find out that Victorine murdered her wife? Or was that right. cleaned up? There? Like, we don't know. And I'm assuming cleaned up. I'm assuming that that was that Pym made all of that look okay. That somehow he made all of that look like, oh, it's a murder-suicide, but the wife did it and Victorine was the tragic victim. Like, like I feel like Pim just fixed it. Like, but we never really know. Um, I feel like that would be the commentary on the rich people is they're, they're rich, we already hate them, and they're making bad decisions. We see them making these selfish, awful choices. And every time they're given an out, she tells Prospero, we can leave. She tells Leo, don't adopt the cat. They choose to do selfish things and they die. And that's enough. I really don't think it needs more explanation than we see them making selfish, bad decisions. I don't know that the show is completely successful. In fact, for me, it definitely wasn't completely it's successful. not but successful. I, but, but, but I don't think it was uh, a bad idea to try and relate the fall the house of the ushers to an actual modern day social issue and whether or not he succeeded you can decide you 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 seem to think it really makes for a poor grafting on i think the show honestly has bigger problems than that um mostly around tone and around performance and around like matching the past and the present and making sure these characters are consistent those are the biggest issues for me but i had no issues with like thematically the it's, ushers were into some terrible shit that made society worse. That happens to be something we recognize, you know? Yeah. So. And, and maybe if they fix like the tone problem and, and we saw the yeah. progression from young Madeline and Roderick to old Madeline, maybe if all yeah. that was connected, that other stuff would have worked out a little bit better. Yeah. Maybe. Um, yeah. But I feel like it's just, to me, it's just a mixed bag. There's a lot of individual elements that I like performance wise, production design. Yeah. Some of, like you said, the kills are very well realized and, and some of the individual horror moments, a couple of the adaptations are really good. Um, but it, then you have things like, I hated what they did to Rue Morgue. I just hated that so much. Um, 
and then you have those issues of like the tone doesn't connect, the performances don't connect. There's there's just some 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 stuff that again, like I feel like this needed a little bit more time in the oven. Yeah. A little bit more baking time. Um, a real mixed bag, but still worth talking about and uh, thinking about and watching. Yeah, and so. it's not like I wouldn't recommend it. I would say if you like Mike Flanagan, if you like Edgar Allan Poe, by all means, watch it. Um, you just, it's just probably not going to be your favorite Flanagan thing. I think you're right about that. Uh, I completely agree. So I think we can wrap it up on that note of agreement. Sarah Mars, where can people find more of your work on the internet this week? Um, you can find my work on laneygossip.com or on the Squawk Substack. Um, that's new. Oh, yeah. What's the, what's the Squawk Substack? Um, it's an offshoot of Laney Gossip where we do deeper dives into pop culture, gossip, gossip history. Uh, last week and this week, my boss, uh, Laney Louis, did a deep dive into the Beckhams of 2004 with the docuseries. It's on Netflix. She was yeah. revisiting the scandals and trials and tribulations of the Beckhams in 2003 and four, um, which is just a horrible fashion rewind, just really bad hair decisions and, and clothing decisions, just very bad all the way around, but also interesting from a perspective of a celebrity power couple who went through the meat grinder and came out like they're cultural institutions. Now they're the Beckhams. Yeah. Um, so she did that. So it's it's just kind of longer, deeper dives into pop culture and gossip history. Very cool. You can find more episodes of this podcast at podcast.decodingtv.com. Email us at decodingtv at gmail.com. Let us know what you think. And we are going to be continuing to cover Loki right here on Decoding TV. So keep it tuned in for that. Me and Patrick are covering that show, having a lot of fun doing it. Okay. Until next time, thanks for listening to Decoding TV. We'll see you later. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 